Ja, ja, nu går jag. Jag såg oss. Jag älskar. För jag är stryklig. Och jag är strådd. Jag säger. Jag vill jag. Jag såg oss. Nu går jag. Welcome to the 361st of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we continue with the South with Scott by Edward Evans book, who was part of Scott's fabled and fatal journey south. And then we'll continue the reading of Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Let's get to that white continent. Chapter 11. Preparations and Plans for the Summer Season. Whilst the spring depot-laying party was absent, Scott, on September the 15th, took a small sledge party counting Bowers, Seaman Evans and Simpson away westward. They covered over 150 geographical miles and commenced by taking over to Butter Point a quantity of stores for Griffith Taylor's forthcoming western summer journey. The provisions deposited, Scott marched up the Ferrar Glacier to Cathedral Rocks and did some scientific work and surveying. He found that the Ferrer Glacier moved 32 feet in seven months. He then came back down the glacier and continued his march on the sea ice, following the coast into the five-mile-deep bay known as New Harbour, and thence outward and north-eastward to Cape Berenacci, and on to Marble Point, where the broken-off portion of Glacier Tongue was found aground, as stated already. After an examination of this ice mass, the party pressed on past Spike Point to Dunlop Island sledging coastwise parallel to the Piedmont Glacier, named by Griffith Taylor, after Dr. Wilson. A thorough examination was made of Dunlop Island, revealing many facts of extraordinary scientific interest. On the 24th of September, the sledge team retraced their steps from Dunlop Island to a camp near Marble Point, and after spending a night close to the remnant of Glacier Tongue, they shaped their course direct for Cape Evans which was reached about 1am on the 29th of September. Travelling mostly on sea ice, and well away from the frigidity of the ice barrier, Scott was not troubled with any particular low temperatures, but he experienced a nasty blizzard on the two days preceding his return to headquarters. Apart from the value of this journey in observations of a technical nature, Scott gleaned much information which he was able to impart to Griffith Taylor, concerning the very important journey to be undertaken by the latter. Once back in the hut, Scott set to work to put the final touches to his elaborate plans, drew up instructions, got his correspondence in order lest he should miss the Terra Nova through a late return from the Pole, and even wrote a special letter urging that special promotion to Commander's rank should be given to Pennell and to myself. About this time he called on us severally to relieve him, if we could, of the responsibility of paying us for a second season. Most of us signed the document, but not all could afford to do so. The general outline plan for the polar journey was now understood by all concerned in it to be as follows. The Motor Party Day, Lashley, Hooper and myself to leave winter quarters about October the 22nd, the two motors dragging fuel and forage. The Pony Party, consisting of Scott, Wilson, Oates, Bowers, Cherry Garrard, Atkinson, Wright, Petty Officer Evans, Crean and Kia Hain, to be independent of the success of the motors to work light loads and easy distances out to corner camp, full loads and easy distances to one-ton camp, 
and full distances beyond this point. The dog teams, starting later to rejoin Scott at One Ton Camp. The first object was to get 12 men with 43 weekly food units provision, four men per weekly unit, to the foot of Beardmore Glacier. Thence, with three units of four men and 21 units of provision, it was hoped to extend the advanced unit, polar party of four men, the required distance. The route intended was the actual one taken, as shown on the accompanying map. All our instructions were clear, and we knew what was expected of us long before the start of the southern journey was made. The plans and instructions complete, we had a full month for our own individual work. I had plenty to do in conjunction largely with Devenham, and accordingly he and I and Gran set out on September the 23rd with sledge, tent, and a week's food supply to complete and extend our surveys, and in Debenham's case, to geologize. We had an interesting but somewhat chilly time. Theodolite and plain table work are not suited to very cold climates. We all three worked long hours, usually turning out between 5 and 6 a.m., and not wasting time over meals. Whilst away surveying, we mostly worked on sea ice, and pitched our tent there, and on October the 2nd, at midnight, a terrific squall struck our tent. We knew that Wilson's experience had been, and consequently were out of our bags in a moment. Being close to land, we got Grand to collect rocks on the valance, while Debenham and I held on for our lives to it, otherwise the tent would have blown away via McMurdo Sound into the Ross Sea. Eventually all was serene. The tent securely anchored by rocks piled close around, and we three were snoring in our bags. We lay still until the following morning by which time the blizzard had abated, and one could see a mile or two. Accordingly, we were up and about, so that when the visibility suited, Debenon and I were once more at work, and Gran was away to Cape Evans for the purpose of replenishing our food bag. It is worthy of mention that Gran could easily carry sixty pounds of weight in a rigsack, a Norwegian knapsack for ski running and towing, and hung about him whilst keeping up a speed on ski that made the best of us sweat. Debenham, whilst in the neighbourhood of the Turk's Head, found much of interest to geologists, and was pleased at what we collected in the way of information. Deb was one of the best cooks in the expedition, so we fared well whilst he was with Gran and myself. Gran kept us alive with his reminiscences, which were always amusing, and he certainly possessed the liveliest imagination in the expedition. He ought to have been a brigand chief. Sometimes his imaginative foresight led him to commit slight breaches of discipline, as the following anecdote will show. On midwinter night, when our table was gay and festive, Gran noticed an unopened pint bottle of champagne towards the end of the feast, when Bubbly was being superseded by port and liquors. Cleverly, he coached the champagne bottle onto his lap, under his jersey, and then finally into his bunk, where it remained hidden until such opportunity should arise for its consumption. Gran was too generous to finish it himself, and too wise to divide it with many. A pint was for two, no more. So it happened that whilst we two were working around Glacier Tongue this spring, doing survey work, we had to come in to Cape Evans for some purpose. We had a hard run out on ski to our camp, and my short legs found great effort necessary to keep pace with the swarthy ski runner. 
Once arrived at the survey camp, I puffed and blew and sank nearly exhausted on my sleeping bag in the tent. I told Graham we must have some tea before recommencing work, and reached out to get the cooker ready. Gran asked me what I fancied most in the world, and my reply, a pint of champagne. He laughed and asked me what I would give him for that same, to which I articulated five pounds and sank my tired head between my knees. Noiselessly, the Norwegian glided from the tent to reappear with a stolen champagne bottle. I smiled delightedly, and soon we were hard at work cooking the champagne into its liquid state once more, for it was, of course, hard frozen in the low temperatures. When we got the stuff melted, it had lost its fizz, but it tasted nectar-like even from our aluminium sledge mugs, and such was the stimulus from it that we worked until darkness had set in. I've never paid the five pounds, for the reason that Gran chose a dinner party at the Grand Hotel Christiana instead. From a financial point of view, I should have gained by paying. But that is another story and has no connection with the frozen south. On October the 13th, we finished the coast survey in McMurdo Sound. Generally, the weather was wretched, but this notwithstanding, we got along fairly well with our work. Once back in the hut, there was plenty to be done preparing for the southern journey. My particular work consisted of rating chronometers, sewing, packing, stowing, making sundials, calibrating instruments, and preparing little charts which could be rolled up on a bamboo stick and carried in the instrument boxes of the sledges. Poor Clissold, our cook, fell off an iceberg while posing for ponting, and was on account of his severe shaking unable to accompany the motor party for which Scott had detailed him. After dinner on October the 17th, Day started his motors, and amidst a perfect furore of excitement, he got one motor sledge down onto the sea ice. At the ice foot, alas, one of the rear axle cases fractured badly, and the car was out of action thirty yards from the garage. The other car wouldn't start. From the 18th until the 24th of October, Day and Lashley were at work repairing the disabled car, and they made an excellent job of it, so that there was no delay in the starting date for the Pioneer Party with the motors. We got all news by telephone from Hut Point, with reference to the state of the surface on the Great Ice Barrier. As Mears and Dimitri returned on October the 15th from a flying journey to Corner Camp and back with depot stores. Mears's dogs on this trip covered the 70 statute miles out and home in 36 hours, including their resting time. Scott handed me my instructions on October the 20th, which read as follows. Quote, instructions for motor party. Proceed at convenient speed to corner camp, thence to one ton camp and thence due south to latitude 80 and a half degrees south, if motors successful. 1. Carry forward from corner camp nine bags forage, one bag of oil cake, but see that provision for ponies is intact with three sacks of oats, one bag oil cake, four bags of forage. If motor's pulling very well, you can also take nine cases of emergency biscuit. 2. In addition, carrying forward from one-ton camp all man food and fuel in depot, viz. seven units bagged provisions, four boxes biscuit, eight gallons paraffin. But see that provision for ponies is intact, viz. five sacks oats, and deposit second bag of oil cake brought from corner camp. If motor's pulling very well, 
you can also take two or three bales of compressed fodder. It being important that I should have latest news of your success, I am arranging for dog teams to follow your tracks from some distance. If motors break down temporarily, you will have time for repairs. If motors break down irretrievably, take five weeks provision and three gallons extra summit oil on ten-foot sledge and continue south, easy marches. Arrange as best you can for ponies to overtake you three or four marches due south of one-ton camp. Advance as much weight, man-food, as you can conveniently carry from one-ton camp, but I do not wish you to tire any of the party. The object is to relieve the ponies as much as possible on leaving one-ton camp, but you must not risk chance of your tracks being obliterated and pony party missing you. Signed, R. F. Scott. End quote. On October the 23rd, I wrote my final letters to my wife and friends, lest I should get back to Cape Evans after the departure of the Terra Nova. We had by now decided that another winter was imperious, and as far as possible those who were likely to remain a second winter wrote to this effect, and left their letters in Simpson's charge. Before my departure with the motors I also spent some time with my leader, and he gave me all his instructions as to the various parties to read. They are so explicit and comprehensive that I may well append certain of them here, for they clearly show how Scott's organisation covered the work of the ship, the base, the Western Party, the dog teams, and even the arrangements for Campbell's party. 1. Instructions for Commanding Officer Terra Nova, October 1911 The expedition suffered a considerable loss of ponies in March, but enough remained to carry out the southern plan under favourable circumstances. This loss and experience with the remaining animals have decided me to start the southern journey at a later date than originally intended. As at present arranged, the southern party leaves at the end of this month, October, and it is estimated that if all goes well, the earliest date at which the most advanced party can return to McMurdo Sound is March the 15th. As it is probable, the ship will be obliged to leave the Sound before this party is returned. Arrangements have been made to pass a second winter at Cape Evans, and, as is clearly desirable, the scientific staff will remain to continue their work. If fresh transport is brought by the ship, other members of the expedition will remain to work it, and it is probable that an attempt will be made to cross the barrier in a south-southeasterly direction in 1912-13. The ship must be prepared to return to the Sound in 1912-13 to relieve those that remain for the second winter. Details concerning past events can be learned from the bearers of these instructions. In all that follows, I want you to understand clearly that you should proceed in accordance with your judgment rather than the letter of these instructions, whether further information you possess may cause it to appear more expedient. Subject to this condition, I wish you to carry out the following programme. I assume that you arrive at the rendezvous Granite Harbour on or about January the 15th and pick up the Western Geological Party as arranged. The party will consist of Griffith, Taylor, Debenham, Gran and Ford. The first copy of this document may be found by you at the depot made by this party on the bluff at the entrance to the harbour, and I hope that Taylor himself will hand it to you. In case the party should be absent, it is well to quote Taylor's plan in brief. 2. November 10th. Exploring party along coast north of Granite Harbour. November 14th to 28th, exploring coast and inland south of Granite Harbour. 
December 8th to January the 8th, exploring inland of Granite Harbour region. Taylor will make every effort to return to Granite Harbour in time to meet you, and should the party be absent, you may assume that it has probably been delayed inland. On the chance that it may have been cut off, you may proceed to search the coast in a southerly direction if ice conditions permit. The time occupied in the search must be left to your judgment, observing that the party will reach Granite Harbour with sufficient provisions to last till April 1912, and should be able to work its way back to this depot. All things considered, I do not think that you need be anxious about the party, even if you find a search impracticable, having regard to your future movements, and you will remember that the search will be more easily prosecuted as the season advances. Should the party be recovered at once, as is most probable, I wish you to take it to Cape Coves and land it without delay. The provisions carried by the party should be sufficient to support it for about two months to provide for the possibility of the failure of the ship to return. I imagine this landing will be effected about January 18th or 19th, and the party should be instructed to be prepared to be re-embarked on February the 15th. It will, of course, be under your orders, and you should be careful that the place for relief is thoroughly understood by all concerned. After landing this party, you will proceed to Cape Evans, and should you reach it on or about January the 23rd, you will have three weeks in McMurdo Sound before proceeding to finally relieve the geological party. There will be a great deal of work to be done, and very little assistance. The order in which it is to be performed must depend on the state of the ice, etc. But of course, the practical work of relieving the station must take precedence in point of importance. Simpson will remain in charge of the station, and is provided with complete lists of the stores remaining, together with the requirements for the future. Bowers will have left a letter for you concerning these matters. It is probable that a good many of the stores you bring will not be required on shore, and in any case you will easily determine what is wanted. If ten tons of patent fuel remain, we shall not require more than fifteen tons of additional fuel. In addition to stores, I hope you will be landing some fresh transport animals. Oates has drawn a plan for extending the stable accommodation, which will be left with Simpson. The carpenter should be landed for this work, and for a few small alterations in the hut accommodation which may be necessary. The Discovery Hut at Cape Armitage has now been put into fairly good order, and anticipating that returning parties may have to remain there for some time, as we did last year, I am arranging to transport a quantity of stores to Hut Point. In case the ponies are unable to finish this work, I should like you to complete it at some convenient season. According to circumstances, you will probably wait until the ice has broken well back. Mails and letters for members of the Southern Party should be taken to Hut Point and left in clearly marked boxes. Simpson will inform you of the plan on which the Southern journey is being worked. The first returning parties from the South should reach Hut Point towards the end of January. At as early a date as convenient, I should like you to proceed to the western side of the Sound. 1 to find a snug berth in which the ship can take shelter during the gales, and two, to erect the meteorological hut if you have brought it with you. From recent sledge trips to the west, I am inclined to think that the excellent shelter could be found for the ship alongside a fast ice in the Ferro Glacier Inlet, or in New Harbour, and it might be well to make headquarters in such a place in time of disturbance. But it would be wise to keep an eye on the possibility of ice pressure along the sound. It might be possible to moor the ship under the shelter of Butter Point by a hawser secured to balks of timber buried deep in the snow, 
she should be easy at long scope. In regards to the hut, my idea is to place it in as sheltered a spot as possible, at or near a spot which commands a view of the strait, the main object being to make it a station from which the phenomena of blizzards etc. can be observed. Simpson, who was with me in the West, will give you some idea of our impressions. You will understand that neither of the above objects are of vital importance. And now, settle down. It's time for some dreams. They bore him breathless into that cliffside cavern and through monstrous labyrinths beyond. When he struggled, as at first he did by instinct, they tickled him with deliberation. They made no sound at all themselves, and even their membranous wings were silent. They were frightfully cold and damp and slippery, and their paws needed one detestably. Soon they were plunging hideously downward, through inconceivable abysses, in a whirling, giddying, sickening rush of dank, tomb-like air. And Carter felt that they were shooting into the ultimate vortex of shrieking and demonic madness. He screamed again and again, but whenever he did so the black paws tickled him with greater subtlety. Then he saw a sort of grey phosphorescence about and guessed they were coming even to that inner world of subterrene horror of which dim legends tell, and which is litten only by the pale death-fire wherein reeks the ghoulish air and the primal mists of the pits at the earth's core. At last, far below him, he saw faint lines of grey and ominous pinnacles which he knew must be the fabled peaks of Throck. Awful and sinister they stand in that haunted disk of sunless and eternal depths higher than man can reckon, and guarding terrible valleys where the dolls cruel and burrow nastily. But Carter preferred to look at them than at his captors, which were indeed shocking and uncouth black things with smooth, oily, whale-like surfaces, unpleasant horns that curved inward towards each other, and bat wings whose beating made no sound, ugly prehensile paws, and barbed tails that lashed needlessly and disquietingly. And worst of all, they never spoke or laughed, and never smiled because they had no faces at all to smile with, but only a suggestive blankness where a face ought to be. All they ever did was clutch and fly and tickle. That was the way of the night gaunts. As the band flew lower, the peaks of Throck rose grey and towering on all sides, and one saw clearly that nothing lived on that austere and impressive granite of the endless twilight. At still lower levels, death fires in the air gave out, and one met only the primal blackness of the void, save aloft where the thin peaks stood out goblin-like. Soon the peaks were very far away, and nothing about but great rushing winds with the dankness of nethermost grottos in them. Then, in the end, the night gaunts landed on a floor of unseen things which felt like layers of bones and left Carter all alone in that black valley. To bring him thither was the duty of the night gaunts that guard Gran Egg, and this done, they flapped away silently. When Carter tried to trace their flight, he found he could not, since even the peaks of Throck had faded out of sight. There was nothing anywhere but blackness and horror, and silence, and bones. 
now Carter knew from a certain source that he was in the Vale of Noth, where crawl and burrow the enormous dolls. But he did not know what to expect, because no one has ever seen a doll, or even guessed that such a thing may be like. Dolls are known only by dim rumour, from the rustling they make amongst mountains of bones, and the slimy touch they have when they wriggle past one. They cannot be seen, because they creep only in the dark. Carter did not wish to meet a doll, so listened intently for any sound in that unknown depth of bones about him. Even in this fearsome place, he had a plan and an objective. For whispers of Noth were not unknown to one with whom he had talked much in the old days. In brief, it seemed fairly likely that this was the spot into which all the ghouls of the waking world cast the refuse of their feastings, and that if he had but had good luck, he might stumble upon that mighty crag taller even than Throck's peaks, which marks the edge of their domain. Showers of bones would tell him where to look, and once found he could call to a ghoul to let down a ladder, for strange to say he had a very singular link with these terrible creatures. A man he'd known in Boston, a painter of strange pictures with a secret studio in an ancient and unhallowed alley near a graveyard, had actually made friends with the ghouls, and had taught him to understand the simpler part of their disgusting meeping and glibbering. This man had vanished at last, and Carter was not sure but that he might find him now, and use for the first time in dreamland that far-away English of his dim waking life. In any case, he felt he could persuade a ghoul to guide him out of Noth, and it would be better to meet a ghoul which one can see, than a doll which one cannot. So Carter walked in the dark, and ran when he thought he heard something amongst the bones underfoot. Once he bumped into a stony slope and knew it must be the base of one of Throck's peaks. Then at last he heard a monstrous rattling and a clatter which reached far up in the air, and became sure that he had come nigh the crag of the ghouls. He was not sure he could be heard from this valley miles below, but realised that the inner world has strange laws. He pondered as he was struck by a flying bone so heavy that it must have been a skull, and therefore realising his nearness to that fateful crag, he sent up his best, as he might, that meeping cry which is the call of the ghoul. Sound travels slowly, so it was some time before he heard an answering glibber. But it came at last, and before long he was told that a rope ladder would be lowered. The wait for this was very tense, since there was no telling what might not have been stirred up amongst those bones by his shouting. Indeed, it was not long before he actually did hear a vague rustling afar off. As this thoughtfully approached, he became more and more uncomfortable, for he did not wish to move away from the spot where the ladder would come. Finally, the tension grew almost unbearable and he was about to flee in panic when the thud of something on the newly heaped bones nearby drew his notice from the other sound. It was the ladder, and after a minute of groping he had it taut in his hands. But the other sound did not cease, and followed him even as he climbed. He had gone fully five feet from the ground when the rattling beneath waxed emphatically, and was a good ten feet up when something swayed the ladder from below. At a height which must have been fifteen or twenty feet, 
he felt his whole side brushed by a great slippery length, which grew alternately convex and concave with wriggling. And hereafter he climbed desperately to escape the unendurable nuzzling of that loathsome and overfed doll, whose form no man might see. For hours he climbed, with aching and blistered hands, seeing again the grey death fire and Throck's uncomfortable pinnacles. At last he discerned above him the projecting edge of that great crag of the ghouls, whose vertical sight he did not glimpse. And hours later he saw a curious face peering over it as a gargoyle peers over a parapet of Notre Dame. This almost made him lose his hold through faintness. But a moment later he was himself again, for his vanished friend Richard Pickman had once introduced him to a ghoul, and he knew well their canine faces, their slumping forms and unmentionable idiosyncrasies. So he had himself well under control when that hideous thing pulled him out of the dizzying emptiness over the edge of the crag, and did not scream at the partly consumed refuse heaped at one side, or at the squatting circles of ghouls who gnawed and watched curiously. He was now on a dim litten plain, whose sole topographical features were great boulders and the entrances of burrows. The ghouls were in general respectful, even if one did attempt to pinch him while several others eyed his leanness speculatively. Through patient glibbering, he made inquiries regarding his vanished friend, and found he had become a ghoul of some prominence in abysses nearer to the waking world. A greenish elderly ghoul offered to conduct him to Pickman's present habitation, so despite a natural loathing he followed the creature into a capacious burrow, and crawled after him for hours in the blackness of rank mould. They emerged on a dim plain strewn with singular relics of earth, old gravestones, broken urns, and grotesque fragments of monuments, and Carter realised with some emotion that he was probably nearer the waking world than at any other time since he had gone down the seven hundred steps from the cavern of flame to the gate of deeper slumber. There, on a tombstone of 1768, stolen from the granary burying ground in Boston, sat a ghoul, which was once the artist Richard Upton Pickman. It was naked and rubbery, and had acquired so much of the ghoulish physiognomy that its human origin was already obscure. But it still remembered a little English, and was able to converse with Carter in grunts and monosyllables, helped out now and then by the glibbering of ghouls. When it learned that Carter wished to get to the Enchanted Wood, and from there to the city of Selephaeus, in Uthnugai, beyond the Tanarian hills, it seemed rather doubtful. For these ghouls of the waking world do no business in the graveyards of Upper Dreamland, leaving that to the red-footed womps that are spawned in the dead cities. And many things intervene betwixt their gulf and the enchanted wood, including the terrible kingdom of the Gugs. The Gugs, hairy and gigantic, once reared stone circles in that wood and made strange sacrifices to the other gods and to the crawling chaos Nyarlathrotep, until one night an abomination of theirs reached the ears of the Earth's gods, and they were banished to the caverns below. Only a great trap door of stone with an iron ring connects the abyss of the earth ghouls with the enchanted wood, and this the gugs are afraid to open because of a curse. 
that a mortal dreamer could traverse their cavern realm and leave by that door is inconceivable, for mortal dreamers were their former food, and they have their legends of the toothsomeness of such dreamers, even though banishment has restricted their diet to the ghasts, those repulsive beings which die in the light, and which live in the vaults of Zin and leap on long hind legs like kangaroos. So the ghoul that was Pikmin advised Carter either to leave the abyss at Sarkomond, that deserted city in the valley below Ling, where black nitrous stairways guarded by winged diorote lions lead down from dreamland to the lower gulfs, or to return through a churchyard to the waking world and begin the quest anew down the seventy steps of light slumber to the cavern of flame and the seven hundred steps to the gate of deeper slumber and to the enchanted wood. This, however, did not suit the seeker, for he knew nothing of the way from Leng to Uth Nagai, and was likewise reluctant to wake lest he forget all he had so far gained in this dream. It was disastrous to his quest to forget the august and celestial faces of those seamen from the north who traded onyx in a cellophase, and who, being the sons of gods, might point the way to the cold waste and Kadath, where the great ones dwell. After much persuasion, the ghoul consented to guide his guest inside the great wall of the Gug's kingdom. There was one chance that Carter might be able to steal through that twilight realm of circular stone towers at an hour when the giants would all be gorged and snoring indoors, and to reach the central tower with the sign of Koth upon it, which was the stairs leading up to the stone trap door in the enchanted wood. Pickman even consented to lend three ghouls to help with a tombstone lever in raising the stone door. For of ghouls, the gugs are somewhat afraid, and they often flee from their own colossal graveyards when they see them feasting there. He also advised Carter to disguise himself as a ghoul, shaving the beard he had allowed to grow, for ghouls have none, or wallowing naked in the mould to get the correct surface, and loping in the usual slumping way with his clothing carried in a bundle, as if it were a choice morsel from a tomb. They would reach the city of Gugs, which is cotominous with the whole of the kingdom, through the proper burrows, emerging in a cemetery not far from the stair containing the Tower of Koth. They must beware, however, of a large cave near the cemetery, for this is the mouth of the vaults of Zin, and the vindictive Gars are always on watch there murderously for those Denzians of the Upper Abyss who hunt and prey on them. The ghasts try to come out when gugs sleep, and they attack ghouls as readily as gugs, for they cannot discriminate. They are very primitive, and eat one another. The gugs have a sentry at a narrow in the vaults of Zin, but he is often drowsy, and is sometimes surprised by a party of ghasts. Though ghasts cannot live in real light, they can endure the grey twilight of the abyss for hours. So at length, Carter crawled through endless burrows with three helpful ghouls, bearing the slate gravestone of Colonel Nafia Derby, obituary 1719, from the Charter Street burying ground in Salem. When they came again into open twilight, they were in a forest of vast lichened monoliths, reaching nearly as high as the eye could see and forming the modest gravestones of the gugs. On the right of the hole out of which they had wriggled, and seen through aisles of monoliths, 
was a stupendous vista of cyclopean round towers mounting up illimitably into the grey air of inner earth. This was the great city of the Gugs, whose doorways are thirty feet high. Ghouls come here often, for a buried Gug will feed a community for almost a year, and even with the added peril it is better to burrow for Gugs than to bother the graves of men. Carter now understood the occasional titan bones he had felt beneath him in the Vale of North. Straight ahead, and just outside the cemetery, rose a sheer perpendicular cliff, at whose base an immense and forbidding cavern yawned. This the ghouls told Carter to avoid as much as possible, since it was the entrance to the unhallowed vaults of Zin where gugs hunt ghasts in the darkness. And truly, that warning was well justified. For the moment a ghoul began to creep towards the towers, to see if the hour of the gugs resting had been rightly timed, there glowed in the gloom of that great cavern's mouth first one pair of yellowish-red eyes, and then another, implying that the gugs were one century less, and that gas have indeed an excellent sharpness of smell. So the ghoul returned to the burrow, and motioned his companions to be silent. It was best to leave the gas to their own devices, and there was a possibility that they might soon withdraw, since they must naturally be rather tired after coping with a gug sentry in those black vaults. After a moment, something about the size of a small horse hopped out into the grey twilight, and Carter turned sick at the aspect of that scabrous and unwholesome beast, whose face is so curiously human despite the absence of a nose and a forehead and other important particulars. Presently, three other ghasts hopped out to join their fellow, and a ghoul glibbered softly at Carter that their absence of battle scars was a bad sign. It proved that they had not fought the Gug sentry at all, but had merely slipped past him as he slept, so that their strength and savagery were still unimpaired, and would remain so till they had found and disposed of a victim. It was very unpleasant to see those filthy and disproportioned animals, which soon numbered about fifteen, grubbing about and making their kangaroo leaps in the grey twilight where titan towers and monoliths arose. But it was still more unpleasant when they spoke amongst themselves in the coughing gutturals of ghasts. And yet, horrible as they were, they were not so horrible as what presently came out of the cave after them with disconcerting suddenness. It was a paw, fully two feet and a half across, and equipped with formidable talons. After it came another paw, and after that a great black-furred arm to which both of the paws were attached by short forearms. Then two pink eyes shone, and the head of the awakened Gug sentry, large as a barrel, wobbled into view. The eyes jutted two inches from each side, shaded by bony protuberances overgrown with coarse hairs. And the head was chiefly terrible because of the mouth. That mouth had great yellow fangs and ran from the top to the bottom of the head opening vertically instead of horizontally. But before that unfortunate Gug could emerge from the cave and rise to his full twenty feet, the vindictive gasps were upon him. Carter feared for a moment that he would give an alarm and arouse all his kin until a ghoul softly glibbered that Gugs have no voice, but talk by means of facial expression. 
The battle, which then ensued, was truly a frightful one. From all sides the venomous gas rushed feverishly at the creeping gug, nipping and tearing with their muzzles, and mauling murderously with their hard-pointed hooves. All the time they coughed excitedly, screaming when the great vertical mouth of the gug would occasionally bite into one of their number, so that the noise of the combat would surely have aroused a sleeping city had not the weakening of the sentry begun to transfer the action farther and farther within the cavern. As it was, the tumult soon receded altogether from sight in the blackness, with only occasional evil echoes to mark its countenance. And that's all for today. Except to remind you, of course, about my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you'll get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books that I record. At the moment, I'm recording a Napoleonic memoir called Recollections of a Peninsula Veteran. Also, Space Viking by H. Beam Piper, and the first volume of The Pentagon Papers, which is a nasty little book reviewing the uh, US decision-making on the war in Vietnam. Please go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. So, until next time...